revolutionary talk for revolutionary times. Promoting peace, liberty, and prosperity around the clock. LibertyTalk.fm. Good morning. Welcome to Medicine on Call. This morning, I think we have one a very timely show and a very important show. And I'm really honored and blessed to have a guest on with me this morning who is somebody who can actually speak with authority, with uh, knowledge, with facts about the system that we are finding ourselves you know, further going down a road that I don't think many of us or any of us actually want to go. I think everybody who's been watching the news recently has seen this onslaught of hate, of division, of uh, just this emotional onslaught to make people hate each other. And it's, I believe, a divide and conquer strategy. And I'm honored to have Mr. Peter Kersenow on today as my guest. He is a member of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. He has an amazing resume. Um, he's been part of the, Nas- the National Labor Relations Board. Um, he's a member of the advisory board of the National Center for Public Policy and Research. Um, he is somebody who's been on the front line of our of our civil rights system. And you know, Mr. Kersnell, once one for one, thank you so much for getting up early and, and coming on the show. And thank you for your time because I know it's important. But you have such a wealth of knowledge. I really wanted to pick your brain and actually discuss with a dispassionate discussion, just facts, about what's going on in our country. I, I'm not that old, neither are you, but we know that this system of our, our civil rights uh, in our country has changed dramatically. We have uh, had a black president voted in twice, and the people who are on the opposite side seem to really want us to believe that we haven't changed, nothing's gotten better, we're basically living in a, basically, I don't know, one step from slavery. What's your take on all of this? Well, first of all, thanks very much for having me on, Dr. George. Uh, I would correct you. I think I am kind of old um, (laughs) and old enough to remember the trajectory of the civil rights movement and the progress that has been made that apparently uh, not too many people want to acknowledge. If you listen to popular media or watch popular media and also some of the comments from some of our elected officials and various leadership groups, you were to think that we're about to descend into uh, another Jim Crow era, possibly worse, uh, when nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, And you're correct, I'm on the Civil Rights Commission. I've been on the Civil Rights Commission for 17 years, which um, I'm I'm the longest serving member of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. So I have been watching this pretty closely, and we do adduce a considerable amount of data to uh, determine Mm -hmm. what's the trajectory of various aspects of civil rights, whether it be race, sex, national origin discrimination, religious liberties, um, LGBTQ, all, all of these things, and um, where we stand today as a society. And uh, without going into a great historical perspective, I'll simply say right now, the snapshot of today as a society, if you take away some of the overheated rhetoric, uh, it seems as if, for example, uh, much of the rhetoric is completely unhinged, um, and look at where we are in terms of non-discrimination, 
we have never had a more uh, egalitarian society in our history. Uh, there are opportunities open to everybody, and that has been the case for a long time. Now, opportunity doesn't mean equal results. Uh, unfortunately, we have a lot of people who think that if we don't have proportionate results in terms of the proportion of uh, people from various races in various occupational groups or income categories, then somehow that is uh, definitive evidence of discrimination, and that's not necessarily the case. Uh, the door is open for everybody and has been for quite some time. Uh, those are the facts, and unfortunately, when you speak facts today or the truth today, you get shouted down as a bigot, racist, homophobe, whatever it may be, mm -hmm. um, and so be it. You know, I think it's important for us to continue to, to talk about the facts, but again, I'm, I'm, I'm rambling on, but let me just say, from an historical perspective, we are at a unique point in time in terms of non-discrimination. This, this is the most open society in the history of the world, and if you want to make it in the United States of America, you're limited only by your own motivation and desire. Uh, yeah, uh, nothing is completely fair, and that could never happen in a nation of 330 million people. There are going to be blips and uh, glitches here and there, but uh, as a uh, general proposition, we are in a very good shape. And again, going back to my historical perspective, look, I've, uh, I grew up before, I, I was born in 1953. And, um, you know, that's just 11 years before the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which is one of the most seminal uh, acts uh, and moments in history from the standpoint of non-discrimination and equal rights. Uh, so if you look at the trajectory, I mean, uh, look, um, there was lawful discrimination, lawful discrimination in terms of employment and accommodations when I was a young kid and traveling around, it was sometimes difficult to uh, get lodging um, uh, if you're black. Mm -hmm. So um, I think people are losing perspective as to how far we've come and they seem, if you go to, I, I speak at a lot of universities, um, mainly I used to debate, but no one wants to debate anymore. Um, and you speak to students who ostensibly have had at least 12 years of education, even if they're only freshmen, and they have just a, a distorted understanding of our history, if they have any understanding at all, and they don't understand where we are as a society today. And part of this, I think, doctor, is you know the media does a very poor job of informing the public. In fact, they disinform the public. We've got an agenda-driven driven media now. And again, talking about my, my lifetime, we're at a point where I've never seen such a biased media um, in my life. And we have educational institutions that are uh, just as biased and don't really teach history or teach history with a Howard Zinn type of slant. Um, and certain segments of history are purged from the curriculum as if they're unworthy of even being uh, discussed. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a very troubling time. That's, that verges on totalitarianism light. And if you don't have an understanding of your history, you don't know where you are today, then you can be manipulated by, uh, well, just about anybody, but by mendacious politicians and mendacious uh, leaders of any sort. I, I couldn't have said it better. I mean, I remember when I was in, in middle school and high school, and we actually had lessons where you had to go back and learn about not only our history, 
but other countries' history. It seems like the textbooks that we used have com been completely changed. Is this what the what core curriculum has wrought? Is that the change that you can see that's changed our cultural or made a cultural divide? I, I think it antedated that. I think it really began uh, in the 1960s. Wow. When there was... Back then, there wasn't the kind of overt expungement of various categories of uh, history, and there wasn't a liberal narrative that seeped into textbooks, and they didn't uh, whitewash um, certain characters, uh, certain historical figures from the text. Um, every once in a while, I, you know, I, well, I go into, uh, I live in Cleveland, and I go into Cleveland high schools. I, on occasion, will teach con law, constitutional law there. And it's a great experience. Um, even though I don't have much time to do so, it really is a great experience. What uh, astonished me, though, was when I first started doing this, maybe, I don't know, 15 years ago or so, I hadn't really examined a public school textbook in any great detail, at least, my kids had gone to parochial school and had, had different texts, and um, those didn't particularly alarm me for any reason. They seemed to be pretty anodyne and similar to the texts that I used when I was in school. But when I looked at the public school texts, I was alarmed. Um, there were aspects of our history that were not being taught, and there were other aspects that were being taught that were, by any measure, insignificant and had no bearing on whether, uh, but no bearing on the country, frankly. Mm -hmm. uh, they were simply exhortations and or hagiographies of certain individuals from an identity uh, politics standpoint or a group politics standpoint. There's more, and, and I don't mean to be, I think it's fine to be studying various individuals in history, but there has to be a certain sense of proportion when you have a finite amount of time in which to teach a particular subject. Mm -hmm. What was stunning to me was, and I don't mean I don't mean to single out this particular individual for anything other than using the, or trying to describe a sense of proportion. The historical figure Sacagawea, a female Native American receives far more attention than many of the founding fathers such as Madison, Jefferson, go on, that can select almost anybody of, of the founding fathers. Uh -huh. um, and that's fine to teach Sacagawea, but it, there's a sense of proportion that needs to be used when teaching that. Uh, she may have been a very fine individual, or if you talk about you know, the Lewis and Clark expedition, you know, they're, they're always talking about Characters that I don't mean to use this, and again, in a disparaging manner, I'm using it in a factually historical manner in, in terms of proportion. Mm -hmm. Fringe characters are people who are on the periphery, um, but they're only being placed in there for, I suspect, feel-good reasons so that individuals can identify with people who quote-unquote look like them, and that shouldn't be the purpose of education. Uh, to feel good. The purpose of education is to put some information in your noggin so you can go out there and be a productive citizen. Um, so if you want to feel good, you know, go home and, you know, you, you know just uh, play sports, uh, watch uh, videos, do whatever you want to do. But for purposes of education and being a productive citizen in our country, we need to know things that are useful, things that are uh, historically accurate and proportionate. I, I couldn't agree more. And something that seems to also be missing is critical thinking. But if you're 
dealing or if you're promoting an educational system that's based on emotion and identifying with a particular group, then you you can't see the other side. And if you're the biggest victim, then you're concentrating on on that. You cannot get out of that box. And therefore, to me, it seems like everybody's a victim. Every Every particular group is a victim. Somebody did something to them. Nobody can listen to any the other side, and now I think we're in this position where everybody's being exploited because of that. Right. There's, um, as you just put it, there's a political imperative to dividing people by group, by sex, race, age, national origin, religion, mm-hmm. and telling people that your prospects in this society are dependent upon your belonging to a group and your binding together possibly with others to form a coalition to advance your objectives when the only objectives are they're being advanced are the political objectives of those who are exhorting you to do that and it is divisive it's not something that is in the best interest of the country it makes people angry it point makes people point fingers it causes people to engage in tribalism uh, it doesn't it's the opposite of e pluribus unum uh, maybe al gore was onto something when he reversed the sequence of those words we are supposed to be one people regardless of race, sex, age. We didn't always adhere to that principle. Uh, that's clear. But there has been a, uh, an energetic effort over decades to adhere to that principle. And it was a principle toward which we aspired for centuries, even though we failed quite often and spectacularly at attaining that objective. Nonetheless, today, it seems as if much of our political energy is directed at splitting people up, dividing people, so that certain parties can make targeted appeals to those people based on their identity, not based on a common interest. Listen, for example, to some of the political ads or listen to some of the cable political talk shows, and what you hear is rhetoric that doesn't advance the common good, but tries to narrow cast to people and to divide people so that they will point fingers at the other and know that I need to belong to this tribe. Mm-hmm. And, and this tribe happens to be the Democrat tribe. And that the Democrat tribe is full of all kinds of good and well-meaning people. And that other tribe, those are the bad guys there. And we hear that over and over and over again. And maybe sometimes it's overt, sometimes it's subtle. And one of the most toxic environments is cable television and also various aspects of social media, which seems to inflame things much more rapidly than it did before the advent of broad-based social media. I couldn't... Thank you for for bringing that topic up, because we want to explore that a lot more when we come back from the break. You're listening to Medicine on Call. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. We're speaking with Mr. Peter Kersenow, a member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. He's also a lawyer who specializes in, in labor um, issues and somebody who has, can speak in with honesty, truth, and 
integrity to what's going on in our country right now. Before the break, we were talking about this ability to, to make us fall into groups and tribal thinking. I think that's to me, I, that's what I've seen as well. We have the growth of these groups, Black Lives Matter, all these other political entities. And if you look at, look back at what started them, they're all starting from a single point. They're all being um, economically supported by a single entity, which has an agenda, which is to make sure that one party stays in power, in my opinion. And the stuff that they're saying with the police and all these these. And these are real episodes, but they're being exploited to actually make people question the the role of the police. It's making people less safe overall, and it's making people really demonize each other. That was the key to what you said before the break. I'm a good person, and the other person is the worst in the world. They're all Nazis. I mean, this the rhetoric is ridiculous, and it makes people emotionally charged. My thing is, if you turn on an emotion you can't critically think it literally turns off the ability to critically think about something what's your take on these these political entities that have become the focal point yeah i think you make a good point about the the feelings versus the thinking um and i I think a lot of organizations entities individuals who um want to attain a certain objective a political objective play on emotion. That's been something that's happened for centuries. Uh, but we're reaching a point now, and I think it's exacerbated by the proliferation of media, whether it be cable, radio, social media. Uh, we're reaching a point where I think we've only been at maybe once or twice before in our history where it appears as if there are ostensibly responsible leaders, at least they are elected officials, who are encouraging people, exhorting people to, first of all, engage in group politics, but to point fingers at the other and harass them and intimidate them and deny them access to public accommodations. It's something we haven't seen except for maybe once or twice before in our history. Uh, Once was during Reconstruction when you had public officials that were encouraging people in the South to resist against the uh, results of the Civil War. And that occurred for, well, it occurred for nearly a century, but it was most intense from the 1870s through the 1890s, the, the, most of the Reconstruction period. There were public officials who were exhorting private citizens to attack, harass, intimidate, deny the rights of other citizens, notably blacks, but also whites who didn't fall into the game plan, didn't fall, follow a party line. And you had um, the, the Klan, for example, which was gigantic by, by back then and was the enforcement wing of the Southern Democratic Party um, attacking people. And I'm not suggesting that we are morphing into that right now, but the dynamic is quite similar. And we don't know where we're going to be going with this kind of charged rhetoric or with the irresponsible activities of people who should know better. Again, political leaders, people who command the bully pulpit, who say intemperate things and actually encourage people to engage in um, if they're, if, it's subtle, but it sounds as if they are going right up to the line of engaging in violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at some point, 
people who can't necessarily control their impulses will engage in violence. We've already seen it to some extent, and we saw it last year when a number of, of congressmen were shot by someone who was unhinged. In a nation of 330 million people, you're going to have some unshinned people who will take the statements of, say, a Maxine Waters and others and run with it, and people are going to get hurt. So I think um, we're playing with fire, and I wish that people in positions of influence would act more responsibly for the best interests of not simply their particular group, but for the interests of the country as a whole. In your opinion, I mean, to me, I don't think these the people who espouse this rhetoric are the majority. I think there are not very many of them, but they're really loud and they're given a megaphone by the media. So it's all you see on TV. You don't see the other side of it where people are getting along. I mean, I just went to a baseball game last night. It was amazing. Everybody was involved. I don't care what color you were, what race, sex you were, didn't matter. They were all one supporting this team. I think more people feel that way and and believe that than this other hate-filled mob that's getting a platform. I agree with that. Um, In my lifetime, I haven't seen individuals of various races and ethnic groups and religions get along better on a one-to-one basis than they do right now. On an individual basis, on a person-to-person basis, uh, there are, and this is just one data point, but the rates of intermarriage are a fairly good reflection of the way people get along with one another. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a considerable amount of intermarriage, but you see people who have um, interracial friendships um, that you hadn't seen 30 or 40 years ago, and it's, um, you know, it's it's nothing remarkable. Mm -hmm. But from a political and societal perspective, tensions have been exacerbated. Group tensions have been exacerbated. And people fall within their own little little tribes and start pointing fingers right away. And again, as we've discussed uh, over the last few minutes, it's because there are political objectives by those who seek to gain power or influence or get their uh, agenda passed and accomplished, who use this to marshal political forces, more people to their side. It's irresponsible, it's dangerous, and I think more and more people are looking at, I think there might be a backlash, at least there's some elements of a backlash, when responsible people look at this and say, this is completely unhinged. Mm -hmm. Um, In their lifetimes or in their lives, they know, you know, things aren't that bad. I can make improvements, but yeah, I can make improvements on an individual level, and the fact that you know, maybe I'm struggling with a mortgage payment isn't attributable to that guy over there who has a different skin color. It's attributable to a host of factors, some of which are out of my control, but most of which are within my control. But that doesn't serve a political purpose for many of the people who are making these statements. And I I don't mean to be dwelling on Maxine Waters. She just happens to be, you know, the... The 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 face of the Democratic Party. (laughs) Right, you know. Uh, But she, for a long time, has been saying this, and not too many of her cohorts have been telling her to cut it out. If you've got someone that's that high visibility in a position of responsibility who's a political leader, a public official saying these, that gives an imprimatur to people to engage in this kind of conduct, engage in the same kind of rhetoric, and at some point there's going to be an unraveling. Um, I'm not really happy about where we are today as a society, and in my 17 years on the commission, I don't think there's been a more precarious 
point uh, than there is right now. We had, you know, a couple of, of uh, inflection points with Black Lives Matter and mm-hmm. a few others. But uh, this one's different. It feels different, uh, and it is different because now you've got people who should know better, and political leaders and people in the media. The media um, has been completely biased. It's, it's extraordinary to see. They, there's not even a pretense of objectivity quite often among many of the people who are on uh, the various cable shows. And that, I think, fuels a lot of the animosity, this, um, this division, and it's not good for society. Let's let's explore a little bit about the Black Lives Matter platform, you know, police brutality, and how black men are are that there's a preponderance of black men that are just attacked and and gone after. Yes, that exists, but what are the statistics on that? Are there more black people, if you can speak to it, more black people who are affected by police brutality versus whites, or is that yeah. is it true? Yeah, well, uh, what's true is this, that um, there are, there's a lot of stats on this, and it's, I mean, it's pretty detailed, but there are occasions when blacks are unfairly treated by cops. That is absolutely the case, and historically, that has been the case. There's no doubt about that. Um, however, unfortunately for the Black Lives Matter rhetoric, their position is not at all supported by the facts, by the statistics, by the raw numbers. Um, and, you know, this is not something that is uh, partisan. This is something that's simply a matter of numbers. The Black Lives Matters movement, in part, contends that blacks, particularly black males, are disproportionately targeted, arrested, uh, murdered by cops compared to their white and Asian or Hispanic cohorts. Uh, the stats don't bear that out. I don't have them in front of me right now, but I do have uh, a rundown. So I may be a little off when I tell you this, but mm-hmm. not by much. Um, if you look at individual cities and the statistics, you will find, for example, that black males in New York City or Chicago are arrested at greater frequency than their uh, white comparatives, that there are more instances, they're subject to more instances of shootings by, by police than their white or Asian comparatives. And that's true. Maybe up to two to three times more often or frequently are they shot than whites are. But that's actually far below that which would be expected based on the black involvement in crime. In other words, black interaction with police. In New York City, for example, and these stats may be a little bit off, but they're truly extraordinary, and it's it's very troubling, and this is what we need to really address. Uh, While uh, blacks, if you do the math on it in terms of the statistical percentages of blacks in New York City and how many get arrested, how many are shot, but how many are involved in, for example, murders, rapes, and robberies, blacks are up to 50 times more likely than whites to be involved in shootings of any nature, whether or not it results in a death. 50 times more likely. So if, if in New York City, blacks are two and a half times more likely to be shot by cops or arrested by cops, um, in black involvement in crime would actually predict that that number would be even greater. 
So there's not a whole lot of data to support the proposition of Black Lives Matter that somehow there's this um, attempt, as it was back in, say, the 1930s, by the Klan to infiltrate police and target blacks. Uh, you know, it's, it's a nice narrative. It's a politically useful narrative, but it's not one supported by the facts. And when you say that, it angers a lot of people, not mm-hmm. because they've got different facts or that they think you're incorrect, but because it derogates, it undercuts their narrative, a politically useful narrative. And there are other folks who they just simply base it on their own experience. My experience is I'm black. I've been pulled over by the cops. And if I only confine my experience or confine my um, analysis of whether or not blacks are disproportionately shot or arrested or pulled over, then just looking at my own little situation, I'm going, well, why did I get pulled over? Um, Well, maybe I got pulled over because I was speeding. There's also data that shows that blacks are something, in New Jersey, for example, there was a study that was done that blacks are several times more likely to speed than whites are. So they're going to be pulled over more frequently. But if you take a look at the the numbers uh, from a statistical perspective, the Black Lives Matter rhetoric doesn't pan out. Well, let's let's take a break and digest that because that's really an important point. Personal responsibility. No one wants to talk about that, but it's actually an underpinning of everybody's behavior. Let's take a break. You're listening to Medicine on health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out of pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. We're speaking with Mr. Peter Kersenow, a member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. And before the break, we were having a really truthful conversation about what's going on. I know there may be some listeners out there who are really taken aback by what they just heard. But I think the best way to fix things is to tell the truth, you know, shine a light on everything. Instead of us getting one side of an, of an argument where we're all pushed into thinking one way, because it serves somebody else's agenda, we need to really take responsibility for ourselves. I really believe that if everybody would stop blaming others, examine themselves and what they're doing and their choices in life and how it affects them, we'd be a lot better off. Are you there, sir? 
Yes, I am. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, Dr. George, before we went to the break, I said I didn't have stats, but I'm in my office and mm-hmm. I went to my, my, my files and I found some of the stats and okay. I think they, they may be uh, interesting. Now, again, we're talking about the Black Lives Matter movement and the narrative that drives the movement is that blacks, particularly black males, are disproportionately targeted by police. And, you know, there's no way you can say, for example, that that never happens. It happens, and historically it did happen. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Um, But in 2018 America, that narrative is completely false. It's undercut by the facts. Now, if, for example, if the narrative were true that blacks are disproportionately targeted by cops, then you would expect that, for example, if blacks are shot two and a half times more frequently than whites by cops, then that's because blacks uh, encounter cops or commit um, the types of offenses that would cause police involvement at something less than two and a half times. In other words, on a one-for-one basis with whites, that their black involvement in crime would be pretty much the same, so there'd be no reason for cops to show up, no reasons for cops to shoot, uh, and the types of crimes that blacks would be involved in would be the kind of crimes that wouldn't prompt or more, would be less likely to prompt police shootings. But here's what some of the stats are and the troubling. And one of the reasons I raise this, Dr. George, is because responsible people want to make sure that any kinds of unfair targeting don't happen, but also want to protect people. That is, uh, make sure that it is less likely that blacks, whites, whoever are not unfairly shot, are not um, uh, subject to any kind of discrimination, and that people aren't killed by cops unfairly or for any unwarranted uh, reason. However, the Black Lives Matter's rhetoric has a tendency to cause people to think that they're being unfairly arrested or stopped by cops, which could prompt an attitude in the person being stopped or arrested that this is unfair. Mm -hmm. And if they've got that attitude, what happens? They may strike back at a cop that is trying to arrest them. They may try to um, run away from the cop or get his gun or something like that. Those kinds of things happen. That's real life. So to prompt a narrative that is false, that fuels that kind of behavior, is simply going to subject individuals to greater jeopardy. So here are the stats. In Chicago, and I'll give you two stats, one for Chicago and one for New York. In Chicago, blacks are two and a half times more likely to be shot and killed than whites are. Two and a half times. So you would expect that if that was unfair or racist or discriminatory, that that's um, black involvement in crime would be less than two and a half times that of whites or other racial groups. But in Chicago, blacks are 16 times more likely to commit murder, 42 times more likely to commit robbery, 80 times more likely to be involved in shootings of any kind, not two and a half times. Now, there's not a one-for-one correlation, but if black involvement in crime is that much greater than that of some other racial groups, you would expect the shootings to be that much greater, especially for these types of crimes in New York. And there's a lot more stats I won't bore you with. I mean, there's tons of stats on this that put the lie to the Black Lives Matter rhetoric. In New York City, 
Um, in, this is for 2015. In New York City, blacks are, bear with me for a moment, I'm going down the list here. Blacks are two times more likely to be shot than whites. However, in New York City, black men are 51 times more likely to be involved in any kind of shooting, regardless of whether it results in a death, 38 times more likely to commit homicides, 35 times more likely to commit robberies. I mean, this is not 5% or 10% more likely. We're talking, in some cases, 5,100% more likely. So the, the, the number of shootings actually under-predicts black involvement in crime and vice versa. It's, it's really a, an incredibly disproportionate number that puts the lie, or at least to a large extent, the lie to the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. Not to say again that there aren't individual bad actors out there, a bad cop that shoots uh, a black male, but in most instances what we've seen is something that Heather McDonald called the Ferguson effect. That is, cops are so reticent to use any form of force because they know of the backlash and that they could lose their jobs. They don't want to end up like that guy in Ferguson, the cop in Ferguson, who's probably in a witness protection program somewhere now. Um, so they withdraw from active policing. And in those cities where that has happened, immediately after Ferguson, or immediately after where there's, there's been a shooting like this, um, what you see is a fairly significant spike in crimes because cops have withdrawn from active policing for fear of being um, arrested or blamed for a shooting. This is not good for anybody, and it's particularly not good for blacks, because what happens when the cops withdraw is the number of people shot goes up, and who do you think is getting shot? Other blacks. Mm -hmm. This is not good, and unfortunately, as I said at the outset, um, if you say these things, all manner of a program is leveled upon you. You're called a denier, you're called all kinds of things. Um, no one wants to address the facts. And what's really unfortunate is an ostensibly responsible media, the news media, completely misreports, completely ignores this data. And they are fueling the kind of anger that results in the Black Lives Matter movement that is completely irresponsible. And also you've got certain politicians who try to capitalize off of that anger. They know or should know of this information and they choose to ignore it for political advantage. That's despicable. Is there a bigger picture here? I mean, you're painting the truth versus the rhetoric. We have uh, people really at each other's throats, but the truth underneath everything is not getting out there. Is there? I mean, you wrote, you've written stuff about the administrative state, and is this a, a method? You know, you create chaos, and you, you take advantage of the chaos to get more power, to make things more rigid. Is that something that you see? And what is the administrative state, for those who don't know? Yeah, the administrative state consists of all the, the agencies, whether on the local, state, or federal level. The, in other words, the bureaucracy, whether it is the EELC or the OFCCP or the Office of Civil Rights of the Department of Education, a whole host of agencies. And again, they're at the local level. You have your local civil rights commissions. You've got your state human rights commissions. And the administrative state is huge and vast and populated by 
hundreds of thousands of employees nationwide. Mm -hmm. The administrative state is that which administers um, regulations that have been promulgated by local, state, and federal agencies. And those regulations, uh, I mean, it, when we're simply talking about civil rights, they deal with all manner of things related to non-discrimination, school discipline, um, uh, you know, some of the bathroom policies that we've seen recently, and, and it goes beyond that also. Just recently, for example, yesterday, we had the Becerra case decided by the Supreme Court that struck down California's requirement that crisis pregnancy centers advertise or advise women who come there of abortion services, which is just the antithesis of what these centers are all about. And the court struck that down, but there was an administrative state that would administer that and make sure that those centers did provide uh, those types of services or provide that kind of information. So it has its tentacles in a lot of areas of our life and you're right. I, I think you're a lot smarter than I am in figuring this out. <laughs> but it, it's um, it's a it's a tactic that has been used throughout history to expand power. That is to cause division among people, to engage in, for lack of a better term, a culture war that requires an administrative state to tamp it down or moderate it. And I'll give you an example. Um, you have the growth of these federal agencies in large part as a result of many of these divisions and some of the inflamed uh, rhetoric that we hear to make sure that they administer um, the state, the, the regs in a fashion to tamp that down. You have, um, let's look at the EELC for example. Um, not to say these things don't have a place or that they don't have legitimate aims. Uh, they do, and there's a, the reason we've got these agencies. But they have taken on a life of their own. They've expanded dramatically. They have inserted themselves in all aspects of our lives, and in many cases they've done so in ways that are actually harmful or um, counterproductive. The EEOC in 1978, and this is in inflation-adjusted dollars, so it's dollar for dollar, had a budget of $124 million. In 2018, its budget is nearly three times that of $364 million. Now, there are more people in the United States than there were in 1978, but not three times as many people. And no one in their right mind can say that there is more discrimination now than there was in 1978. There's significantly less real discrimination in the United States today, thank goodness, than there, is, there was in 1978. But what we've done is we've expanded the scope and authority of the EEOC to get involved in all manner of things, such as the EEOC now has a number of policies such as the background check policy that tells employers what they can ask and can't ask and how far back they can go in examining an applicant's criminal record. And, and it goes on and on and on. And every department within the United States government has its own office of civil rights. And it's not just one little office off in a corner somewhere. We're talking about offices that are staffed by thousands of people with gigantic budgets. To give you one example, the Office of Civil Rights in the Department of Education. In 1988, 30 years ago, it had a budget of approximately $40 million. 
Today, its budget is $106 million. Wow. Uh, the reason for that is a number of regulations were passed. So the, these are self-perpetuating agencies, too. You create an agency to address a particular problem, and then that agency starts passing or, or developing its own regulations that some, sometimes, because of, and I won't go into any details, uh, Supreme Court precedent, they expand their own power by, by issuing their own regulations. They've got the ability to interpret those regulations how they deem fit. And so it explodes and it gets into so many spheres of our lives that weren't intended necessarily by Congress, but as I say, these agencies take on a life of their own. And the next thing you know, we're a hyper-regulated society. Uh, we're supposed to be a free society within certain parameters. You're not free to go around committing crimes. You're not free to discriminate against your, your fellow American. But we're otherwise free to do and think as we wish. But the administrative state is compressing our ability to do that, sometimes in suffocating ways, and depriving us of those freedoms in ways that I think the founding fathers, and not just the founding fathers, anybody up until just day before yesterday would have thought would be, you know, uh, contrary to American ideals, and frankly, some of them are quite lunatic. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. Hey, let's take a, our last break, a very small one, and return. You're listening to Medicine on Call. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. We're speaking with Mr. Peter Kersenow. And before the break, I think you've, well, the entire show, you laid out an amazingly strong case for the truth versus the fiction that we're all being being fed. Now, let's talk about, if we can, some solutions. Now that people are actually aware of what's going on with your the conversation we've just had, what do you think people can do to break this this cycle, this this pathway that we're going down? Well, I think um, the truth is the, and, and sunlight, as they say, is the greatest disinfectant. I know this is tough to do, but I think we have a responsibility, a civic responsibility as Americans to educate ourselves and then communicate the facts to others. I know that sounds you know, simplistic, and it also means that, boy, we got to educate ourselves. That sounds kind of tough. I don't necessarily want to do that. i got important things to do. You know, I can't go around saving the world. I'm just trying to make my mortgage payments. <laughs> but nonetheless, I think it is incumbent upon each American to take a little bit of time. It doesn't have to be on a daily basis. It doesn't have to be, you know, every single hour. But take some time to get what the facts are, and then sometimes casually and sometimes intentionally talk to people about it, whether it's your family members, co-workers, friends. Now, it's a difficult proposition to do that. You have to understand appropriate times to bring those kind of things up. And it doesn't mean you've got to proselytize. It doesn't mean you have to be on some kind of a mission. But it could be casual. And anytime you see you have a chance, just recite some of the facts, for example, I just mentioned with respect to, to uh, police shootings. And there's a whole host of, of stats you can find on all manner of subjects that puts the lie to what the prevailing narrative is that we're getting from a lot of people uh, in the media and from certain political leaders. Uh, and, and these lies are so blatant and extraordinary. They truly are. They, most people can't even believe how unbalanced the, the facts that are being, or the, the information being presented to us truly is, mm -hmm. uh, as you just heard those stats. 
Um, but it's important to chip away at this on a regular basis, to educate ourselves about this, to find the truth. And there's no excuse not to know the truth anymore, despite the fact that the media is overwhelming biased in, overwhelmingly biased in one direction. There, there are a number of sources you can go to uh, to find the information. And it's useful information, too. You don't want to go through life ignorant or um, slanted by uh, inaccuracies and misreporting. Uh, You want to be able to make judgments on real information. And I think that's important. Also, I think it's important to call out, and by that I mean whether it be simply turning off the television or um, taking more affirmative steps, the bias of the media. In my lifetime, in the last couple of years, the bias of the media has reached a point that is um, something we've never before witnessed in our country, and it's toxic. It's truly poisonous. A democracy depends on a commonly accepted uh, facts, actual factual information, not biased narrative in service of a particular agenda. So what a number of people I've talked to when I'm out speaking to groups of people, it's a simple proposition. And I know this sounds, this is not something that is profound. I wish I could give you something that you know sounds truly extraordinary. But sometimes the simplest types of responses are the best. And one of the devices that a lot of people I've talked to um, are starting to use is just to get yourself a little three by five card that has the names of your elected representatives next to it and it has or on it and next to it is their contact information whether it be their office phone number or email address whatever it may be so it's readily available sometimes i talk to groups of people and they get all upset they watch something on television and they hear that well you know uh, a tax cut was repealed or someone did x y and z that they disagree with but aside from being frustrated in the moment they don't do anything about it. And one of the reasons they don't do anything about it is they don't know who their elected representative is. And then to, the time to find out who it is and get his phone number or contact information, they're on to something else. Maybe some, something's on uh, television that's, that is sports or entertainment related. Uh, but what happens is if you take a little three by five card and you've taken the time to put down two or three elected representatives, whether it be the mayor of your town, whether it be your councilman, whether it be your state representative, whether it be your congressional representative or senator, and have his phone number on there. And I've seen this work in person because I've been in, in the Capitol, in various congressmen's um, office, when these kinds of things happen. So if you see something on television and it says, well, we're going to um, get involved in telling people what bathrooms they use, and you don't think that's appropriate, or you think it is appropriate. <clears throat> well, um, if you've got a phone number there readily available, once you see it, you just pick up the phone, or you've got the email address, you can email immediately, and all you have to do is simply say, the header line that says, <clears throat> bathroom policy. You know, I'm opposed to it, or I'm in favor of it. And I've been in congressional offices. Um, the, the one that comes to mind immediately is during the 2006-2007 immigration debate, <clears throat> um, when there was going to be a comprehensive in, in, immigration reform. Um, and then again in 2013, when there was going to be a comprehensive immigration reform. And the phones rang off the hook, and it got congressmen's attention. And they decided not to go in a particular direction. So if you've got the ability to do that, it sounds small, mm-hmm. um, but the smallest things sometimes are the most effective. We don't want, I think, I'll speak personally, I think that the larger the government gets, 
the smaller our freedoms become. And we need a government, but it needs to be a properly balanced government. And it's up to an informed citizenry to make sure the government is properly balanced and is discharging the obligations and duties that we wanted to discharge and not go beyond its mandate. Because the government, if it's not checked, will go beyond its mandate. It will naturally grow of its own accord. It will assume power unto itself. And in many cases, it may not be in the best interest of the people. You, know, you just made me feel really good. Um, because if we just take our, our, our power for granted, there's more of us than there are of the elected officials. They need us. They can't get out, get back in without our vote. And that's the only thing that we have is our our ability to say, I'm going to withdraw it. I'm not voting for you. Fix it. I think that's what gets, I mean, it's nice to know that that actually gets their ear because you always question that. You don't have the power of the lobbyist as an individual, but you have your vote. Lobbyists can't put them in, but we can, right? Right. Right. And as I said before, I've seen it with my own eyes in practice when it happens, when there's some issue out there. I've been in, in congressman's office where they have, you know, there's a small ante room there, and usually there's the scheduler there, there's the receptionist, and there's a person who is manning the phones. And they ha very often they keep a ledger there. If there's an issue of the day, for example, let's say the issue is, um, I don't know, um, <clears throat> changing nuclear regulations, who knows what it may be. Mm -hmm. They will have that on their little ledger, and people will call in, and people will simply express their opinion. They'll say, I'm for it, and they put a little check next to it, I'm against it. I mean, I've seen them actually do this kind of stuff, and they look at that stuff, and many congressmen consider phone calls a more, um, uh, I think, something that is an expression of sentiment that has more weight than an email, although I think both probably work, but they, I think their thought process, I don't know this, but I'm assuming their thought process is, if somebody took the time to actually call and not be anonymous and say, look, I'm against or I'm for something, mm -hmm. that person's motivated enough to get to the polls and vote against me if I don't go along with it, as opposed to somebody who simply hits the send button uh, on an email, but both work, both are important, and when, when they reach a particular critical mass, it will get... Uh, a congressperson's attention. So, uh, you know, I'd encourage your listeners to utilize the franchise that's been given to them. Uh, and that is, we live in the freest nation on earth, and we are the people. We are our own government. They work for us, and let's make sure they do that. I couldn't have said it better. In the minute that we have left, how can people reach you and, and read what you've written? Well, the, my, geez, I, I should know this, but my, my, um, you can reach me at the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, and you can go to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights website and send emails there or call there. And there are a number of places in which I've written. Um, I have, there's archives of things I've written over the last 15 years at the National Review website, but I've written for a number of publications. And if I can put in a little plug also, I, um, in all the other things I do, I spend some time in escapism, and I've written a couple of novels also, one which just came out about uh, three weeks ago, another a year ago, and another one will be coming out in about a year. And there are the political thriller novels in the Tom Clancy genre. It's just something I do when I'm on airplanes. And I don't profess to be a Tom Clancy, but it's a lot of fun. I got a book contract because somebody thought I could write. And, um, you know, it's uh, a way to pass the time. Well, I got to look for them. Thank you so much for coming on. You educated me. You educated my listeners. And, yeah, I just 
thank you for making a difference and being a voice for, for reason out there. Thanks so much, Doctor. I appreciate it. Have a blessed day. Take care. Thank you for listening to Medicine on Call. Revolutionary talk for revolutionary times. Promoting peace, liberty, and prosperity around the clock. LibertyTalk.fm.